Let's get this out of the way first. I've never played this game before. I think I have some experience with the Halos at some point, playing them on a friend's Xbox somewhere along the line, but I couldn't tell you which Halos, and I couldn't tell you specifics, so... No, this is the first time I've ever played through this game, and indeed will be the first time I'm going through this franchise in general. From everything I understand, this is a bit of a Star Wars situation. Let me rewind a second here. I'm aware of Bungie because of a game called Myth, which I actually rather dug my teeth into. It was uh, not the greatest game. And then Myth 2 came out, which was better in several respects, but but still a very, very flawed game. But a fun RTS. It was a squad-based RTS, one of the earliest squad-based RTSs I've ever seen, actually. And, you know, it was fun. And there were other aspects of it that really caught me, like the world caught me far more than the gameplay, but... I'll, circle background of that. Apparently while they were working on Myth 2, they were like, ah, oh, guys, we've got this idea for this, you know, the, the science fiction game. And of course it's going to be an RTS because that's what they were working on at the time. And over time, near as I can tell, apparently the vehicle sections were so interesting that they wanted the player to be able to experience them personally. And the camera, they kept zooming in the camera more and more. Keep in mind, if you've ever played Myth, you'll know the camera's like right here. It's very close. So they decided, oh, God, we really want to do this. It became a third-person shooter. They got in touch with Steve Jobs, and they started working with... Uh, they, they did the, the expo thing to show off the game. And then their financial issues started hitting, because the Myth games weren't that popular, which is a bit unfortunate. And Myth 2 had a horrific bug, which, which made my printer turn on just now. And that bug was so bad that they actually had to spend several thousands of dollars in order to try and repair that bug. Yeah, this was one of those directory erasing kind of bugs. If you're familiar with that, that was something that did happen several times in older PC games because we were still kind of figuring out how to do that sort of thing. So, not super great. That led to them being in such financial straits that they were like, how the hell are we going to deal with this? Now, they tried to go to Take-Two. That didn't work out super well. But then they got a hold of a guy named Ed Fries, or Freeze, I'm not sure, never heard it said out loud, and they were like, hey, buddy, um, help? And he was like, hmm, I think I could help you. Microsoft bought them, took their title, and said, we're going to make this into a, you know, a launch title for the Xbox. Oh, or not a launch title, sorry, wrong word, wrong word. We're going to make this into a title for the Xbox. We're going to throw some marketing weight into it, get working on the game. Now, I've noticed this kind of thing happens semi-frequently, uh, not just in video games, this happens in movies as well, and sometimes in television, where they've been working on something for a while, and then something significant changes, and then they have to either throw everything out the window, or start actually working, and all of a sudden, even though the project's been in the works for a while, now they're in crunch time. Now they've really got to smash this out. It's like, okay, God, we have this very, very, very small amount of time to get this game actually made. How are we going to do this? And, yeah, by all accounts, this game was horrifically rushed. And if I might be so bold, it shows. Now, that is not an insult. The amount of quality in this game, despite how rushed and troubled that production cycle was, is actually very impressive. It reminds me of another game I could mention, Dragon Age 2. And I know some people would smack me for comparing Dragon Age 2 to Halo 1, but I do think it's an apt comparison, because neither game is that bad, but both games very clearly show the problem of having such a very rushed development cycle. And could have been much, much better games if they had had proper support. This game 
<sighs> Where do I begin? I like to talk about the gameplay after I've discussed the behind-the-scenes thing. So let's talk about... Uh, well, I'll, I'll circle back to that when we get to the narrative thing. Let's talk about the library. Now, this is probably going to sound strange, but I found the library to be bad, but not the worst. What I think the library is, is a good zoomed-in focus on most of the problems this game has overall from the gameplay axis. The... Oh, gosh... Um, where do I even begin? Let's start with the repeated kind of samey corridors problem. This is actually more of a problem in earlier and later issues, but, or missions, excuse me, but you essentially go through the same, let's say, three corridors over and over and over in the library. There's the one where you're going down, right? There's the one where you're kind of going around in kind of a circle, you know, kind of going around the outer edge. And then there's one where you're going down the hallway, and each, you know, the hallway's got the big kind of arches coming off to the side. And I bet if you play this game, you could picture all three of those locations right now. And those three locations are kind of it. The big elevator in the middle, that's your checkpoint. That, that's your pause period. And then you do it again. And then you do it again. And there's also the hold the line missions, where periodically it's like, hey, by the way, I'd like you to just kind of sit here for a minute and just fight off wave after wave of enemy who are here to kill you. Have fun. Okay. Now, hold the line missions aren't necessarily bad by themselves, but the problem is there's nothing interesting to make the hold the line mission interesting. There's no unique gimmick or interactable terrain or interesting things about the terrain, period. Like, you barely even have cover for most of these things. You can just go behind, duck behind one of those arches I mentioned earlier, and then they'll follow you around, and that's pretty much the extent of how much the terrain matters. It's all There's also the fact that the enemies themselves aren't super interesting for this kind of thing. However, I'm willing to give a pass on that, because I think, as I will talk about later when we get to more positive stuff, I think the design of the Flood is quite good for what they're supposed to be. So... I'll let the flood go, but I do think the terrain is bad. I do think the total lack of any kind of gimmicks whatsoever is bad. And I do think the repetition is bad. Then we add on the fact that it's actually quite easy to permanently miss dialogue that our good friend Guilty is saying as we're walking through. Relevant dialogue, I might add. That's something that bothers me in video gaming in general, but especially in a situation where I am like, oh god, oh god, oh god. You know, as I was saying, and you could say that's the point, and I would be with you, except for the, the skippable part. The fact that you can just flat over miss bits of dialogue because you are running forward too far. Not great. But then there's the biggest reason the library doesn't work for me. And this is probably my single biggest complaint about the game in general. The checkpoint system. Now, I know that we can't possibly expect a game that came out uh, after Half-Life to have the same features that Half-Life did. But... I, when I was when I was reviewing this game, I kept comparing it to Half-Life, Half-Life 1 specifically, because I feel like that's the most apt comparison for a game of this exact design. It feels like a Half-Life-styled FPS. Heavy story focus, uh, several missions, you know, obvious campaign element, and, and most of the elements of design when it comes to health pickups or enemy variety or gun usage, all of that felt very Half-Life to me. Now, that's not an insult, but at the same time, it does show some of the problems of both games. And in fact, we've already reviewed Black Mesa, but if we ever actually review the original Half-Life 1, I will have many of the similar complaints, but I'm getting off topic. In Half-Life, you have the F5 key. In Halo, you have the checkpoint system. Now, I don't know the exact specifics of how this works, but even just with my own testing on camera, plus what people were telling me on stream, I could show, I, I could give a g decent idea of what's going on here. There are certain points in the map, 
uh, probably a literal line, given how these things tend to be designed. Or if you cross over it, that's a checkpoint. And now it does a snapshot, a quick save, of your exact status and, and where you're at at that particular point in time. Now, because of the nature of the game and how it's designed, they don't want to literally take a snapshot. So what they do is they force you to be out of combat while doing that. No active enemies who are actively tracking you, no active damage, etc. So you have to be completely out of it in order to do that. Now, this is relevant because the game uh, likes to do randomization when it comes to enemy spawns and enemy AI cycles, I've noticed. Now, that's a good thing. It helps to vary things up. But this is probably part of why they didn't want you to be able to just F5, because if you did, then you'd get the exact same enemy spawn you did last time. There's one section where I was trying heroic difficulty and I was stuck on a bridge. And while I was stuck there, I would go out, and each time I would go out to the bridge, the, the enemy layout and variety would be different. Sometimes there'd be a dude to the right, sometimes there'd be the, uh, the shield guys, I don't remember their names, forgive me, out on the bridge, you know, being like, sometimes they would be hiding, sometimes the, uh, the gunship would come straight at me, sometimes it would do a quick dive first. It varied based on, you know, whatever, based on just sheer random generalization, which is fine. But you've already probably seen the problem. There's no save or load. So that's problem number one. And the only save or load is the checkpoint, which has to, which means you have to be out of combat for it to trigger. That can and has led to many issues in my playthrough of this game. Now, I don't know if this has affected any of you guys, so feel free to tell me about this. Knowing that, I was able to game the system several times. This is probably one of the reasons I didn't have as much issues with the library as I probably should have. Because I would go out of my way to trade bullets for save points on the library. Just pause and sit there and burn through most of my ammo, trying to kill the overwhelming amount of flood that were surrounding me. And once all the enemies were gone... Checkpoint. And now I don't have to repeat the previous, you know, 5, 10, 15 minutes of section. Which is what happened the first time I went through. I actually got quite a ways through, died, and then went back to the very beginning of the library because I had been in combat the entire time. You see why this is an issue and why I say the library is such a, a magnifying glass on the issues of the game as a whole. Now, that being stated, there was one other mission that I disliked more personally, although it's mostly for another element, and I'm probably being too harsh on it. It's the Betrayals mission, which is immediately after the library. Now, my tolerance for that mission was probably ruined because of the library itself, but the problem is it takes that repetition problem and just cranks it up. Picture this for a moment. For those of you who haven't played this game, you go, you have three rooms to go through. A, B, C, okay? Now, all three rooms look identical. That's a problem with this game in general, as I already mentioned. So you go through A, B, and C, and then you go forward in the game, and later on you go through B, C, and A. That's that mission. The repetition, the backtracking, the padding. It, fe it felt like just, okay, we need to make the game longer. And that's entirely what that section of the game felt like. It didn't even feel like I was accomplishing anything of significance during that particular mission, whereas in most other missions I felt like I was actually pushing forward the campaign. Even in the library, I was actually trying to do something in order to try and advance the story and the narrative. Whereas all I was doing in the padding mission was trying to offset the... Uh, I don't remember what they're called. The pulse shields, the things I had to walk into that nuked my shields. Oh yeah, that's also when I discovered Halo uses monster closets. Check this out. There's one where you've got the pulse thing. I forget what they're called. Please forgive me. And you jump into it. It nukes your uh, shields, obviously. And then enemies spawn right next to you. Now that's not the monster closet, although it kind of is. But in order to get in here, you have to get a flying ship. I don't remember what any of these are called. Please forgive me. You get a flying ship up here, and you land on a platform, which is out here completely by itself. 
There's no other anything. It's just it's just a platform. The only way up is to fly up here, okay? So you land on the platform, you walk in, it's one corridor, and there you are. You hit, as soon as you hit the pulse and start heading out, a whole bunch of monsters spawn in that corridor to come swarm you. <laughs> and and I, I, on, on camera, I'm like, where did they come from? Where Did they climb up? Insert, they're coming out of the walls joke here. Now, obviously, I'm doing a lot of complaining here, and I do apologize, but that's because I wanted to front-load the negatives. It is easy to understand why this game managed to man to get the cult following it does. While it shows its age, there's some good design decisions here. Uh, let me start with the best thing, in my personal opinion, the guns. Now, there's two aspects to the guns. There's utility and there's visceralness. Now, the utility of the guns is very well designed in this game. Each gun fills a very specific niche and does not particularly overlap the other guns. The fact that you're limited to two guns actually kind of sucks, but I, I don't think it really detracts from the game too much. It just diminishes what would otherwise be a very interesting tactical choice, I think, because each gun fulfills its own niche, and you fight a lot of enemies who should be fought with different guns. But even from the... It, it does a lot of things right, too, um... I was talking about the shotgun. The shotgun is actually a fairly well-designed shotgun. Uh, it does... It, it has the usual shotgun benefit, which you're probably thinking, the spread fire, right? No. No, the usual shotgun benefit is the fact that you trade reload time for shoot time. Let me explain what that means. Uh, this, is, this is effectively a form of cooldown control. If you are firing the assault rifle and you run out of ammo, you then have to grab the ammo, put in a new clip, put it in, and put it down. During that whole period of time, you can't do anything. You are locked out, you are on cooldown. That's how most guns work. A shotgun, put in a shell, put in a shell, put in a shell, and at any point in time, you can interrupt your reloading and then just start firing again. You can put in a shell, shoot, put in a shell, shoot, and if you need to, and Lord knows I had to several times, that is an option. That's one of the main benefits from a pure mechanic perspective of a properly designed shotgun. This game does that, obviously. The shotgun also has uh, another feature, two features, I would say, which differentiates it from most other shotguns. First of all, its range is actually decent. In most video games, the shotgun range is maybe 10 feet in front of you. And that might be exaggerating. It might be shorter than that. It is effectively a melee weapon. In this game, it was probably closer to 50 feet. And that might be exaggerating a bit as well, but there were several times when I could effortlessly kill someone who was way over there with the shotgun as long as I aimed properly. Good design. Second thing, though, and this really helped uh, to make the shotgun interesting, is its cone was tighter. Now, this is a matter of preference, but usually a shotgun does something like this, right, in most video games. This shotgun was a little bit more like this. It was still a heck of a spread, but it was far more of a cylinder of death coming out from you rather than this giant spray. The cylinder of death meant you could focus a lot of that firepower on a single target much more easily. Now, that did diminish some of its AoE potential, but it also meant you could very effectively bring down a... Uh, it basically meant the alternative of an AoE. Rather than hitting five targets for ten, you could hit one target for fifty. And now you have four targets. It's it's the other approach to AoE. There's a lot of interesting design decisions in this game like this, and I do... Uh, I wish I had time to properly analyze and discuss why that is. Apparently there's a making of video that they pushed out, which is about an hour long, which I, it would be very interesting to go through and, and learn why they did certain things they did. The other, my favorite gun, by the way, everyone kept asking, what are your favorite guns? The other one's the sniper rifle. You're probably thinking, wait, the sniper rifle? Yeah, I mean, it's very cool. But I also absolutely adored it. But no, the, the, you're probably thinking, why? 
well, I haven't talked about the second thing they did properly, which is the viscerality. That's probably not a word, and I probably don't care. The guns have a good feel to them, and that is extremely important, in my opinion, when it comes to an FPS. You need to have guns that feel awesome, that feel like you have the weight behind it. And surprisingly few FPSs do, in my opinion. Most FPSs, you can feel the mechanical differences, but it doesn't really feel like you're shooting a shotgun. Uh, Doom 4 is actually probably an excellent example of a game where the guns had weight to them, where you could actually feel, based on the visual presentation, the animation, the sound design, and of course the impact of the gun itself, you could feel the weapon and that made it more enjoyable. This, therefore, is another example of that. The guns are surprisingly well designed with regards to that viscerality, especially the sound design. The moment I fired the sniper rifle for the first time, I think it's going to be in the highlights reel. I, I fell in love with it. Just the sound was this wonderful deep bass sound as it shoots. Great stuff. Absolutely loved it. I suppose I should talk about other things this game does well. Um, I'm not going to mention level design, because frankly, I think the level design of this game is kind of lacking. It makes sense. They started off with an RTS, they kind of went to an open world thing, and then they rushed and had to push that out. So a lot of the maps feel literally incomplete, and it makes sense now, knowing why that is. They're not bad, though, and they are at least mission-structured and mission-objective-y, and I think most of the early missions are much better in overall design than the latter half. Pretty much when you hit to the library, it's like, okay... Uh, vehicles, there's an interesting emphasis on vehicles in this game. There are four vehicles I, I drove in this game, and all of them were fun and distinct in their own ways. There's the Glidemobile, which is the Covenant ship, which, which is just strafes are us. It, I actually slid almost immediately into that one because I used to play Unreal Tournament 2003 a whole lot, and there's a vehicle in that that's basically the Strafe-mobile. I, I don't know what it's called in Unreal Tournament 2003, it's been a long time since I've played it, but it felt exactly the same, and I'm pretty sure they borrowed from this one. There's also, of course, the uh, the flying one. That one was really hard to control, and really, I only really used it for the, the mission where it was required. Nevertheless, felt different, and it was nice to have something that was an actual flyer. There's the scorpion. I do know the name of that one. That's the tank. That was fun. And that came right after a bridge section, which was immensely frustrating, so it was nice to have the catharsis. But the one I actually liked the most is the one that was the worst, technically. How many of you have played Mass Effect 1? How many of you like the Mako in Mass Effect 1? I like the Warthog for almost the same reason. It's actually a badly... badly? Incorrectly? It's very arcadey, and the physics is extremely improperly emulated, assuming they even have a physics engine. I'm actually not sure, because the jumping in this game is just kind of terrible. Um, but... but the, the way that the, sh the vehicle is designed, it took me a while to force myself into the mindset of realizing that I shouldn't be driving it like it's a vehicle. Because <laughs> it isn't. It, it doesn't function that way. It, the best example of this I could show, I was playing mouse and keyboard, is you can be gunning it, and if you just swivel, because you steer with the mouse, which is... If you just swivel, the, the vehicle will pretty much per pull a perfect uh, handbrake turn despite gunning it and swiveling immediately, which is not how any of that should work. And it took me a while to get into that mindset, but once I did, it was very good fun, and I actually enjoyed the Warthog quite a lot. So vehicle sections, that helps vary up the gameplay, and that helps to add to the flavor of the game. Excellent. So we've got good guns, good vehicles, mediocre to bad level design. 
I also want to comment, this isn't really a positive thing, but I wasn't super impressed with the distribution. Near as I can tell, the game is designed for you to take enemy weapons and use them. Early on you get Covenant weapons, which are good against Covenant. Later on you get more uh, UNSC weapons, which are good against Flood. The enemy that you fight drops the weapon that is good against them. Okay. I don't like that too much. I think that would have worked better if, A, you had the ability to just have more than two weapons... Because at that point, what would happen is you would run, you would run it dry on the shotgun after a while, right? But because you're still fighting, like, like, let's, let's say you're going through the game and you, you would completely run dry on the, uh, the machine gun ammo because you're not getting any more machine gun ammo because you're not fighting anyone who drops it. But you have tons of ammo for these other things. So you're kind of naturally encouraged to go ahead and use the covenant weapons, which would then allow you to switch that. And then when you start fighting the flood with the covenant weapons, you'd run dry on the covenant weapons and get more ammo for the previous weapons. I think that would work better that way. But B, the other reason I don't think it works very well is looting is kind of irritating in this game. I had a really hard time seeing where the guns were in several cases, and the fact that you have to hold down E in order to swap a weapon was not something I was super fond of. I, I would have preferred something where you could just run over it, which, again, would make more sense if you had more than two weapon slots. But I digress. But the enemies... <laughs> the AI is actually really good. I don't know much about the specifics, unfortunately. I wish I did. I talked extensively during the Half-Life lore run about the nature of how they pulled off the illusion of AI when it came to Half-Life 1. Because they don't actually have proper AI for the Marines in Half-Life 1. They just have very complex... That's the wrong word. They have a series of scripts which they have r strung together in a very complex way. The scripts themselves are quite simple. But the way they designed them and overlapped them to emulate AI is actually quite brilliant. Near as I can tell, and again, asterisk here, I wasn't able to do a full de degree of research because I have to start Halo 2 later today. But uh, from what I could tell and from what I did look in, apparently this is actual AI design. And frankly, it shows. Probably the biggest thing I like about this game's difficulty is the fact that the AI so demonstrably changes as you switch between the difficulty modes. Uh, when Shadow Machine and I were playing on Legendary, it was very noticeable how differently the patterning was of how enemies would move, how they would attack, how they would approach, how they would flank, just all sorts of stuff. And each enemy, of course, has their own scripts... AI, whatever it actually is. So each enemy does operate differently. This was most obvious when I started fighting the Flood. I loved that, by the way. The Covenant, um, you fight, you, you notice this, this is well designed too. When you're fighting the Covenant, you're fighting like four guys, maybe eight on the high end. Those are the really big battles, and when they're eight Covenant in one battle. Usually it's more like one or two elites and like three or four grunts, and that's it, right? Relatively small group, but they're running around, they've got ranged weapons, they know how to flank you, they know how to hide. They will wait for a fairly long period of time until they think you're not there. Apparently they will actually track your inputs on Legendary, that probably explains part of that as well. The Flood, they charge you. Straight on. Now you're probably thinking, well that makes it so much easier, right? No, because at that point what they're doing is the people in front are serving as body blockers for the people in back, which is, the, the that's the Zerg rush concept in a nutshell. The early wave's purpose is to chew up ammo and time so the later wave can get there. That is the mechanical version of a Zerg rush. And they will swarm you, and rather than fighting an average of three to five enemies, you're fighting closer to eight or twelve or twenty. You fight far more flood. And they will swarm you. 
And they've got the combat forms, which of course have all sorts of guns. That's where you get the ammo from them. And can, they can also just melee you, which hurts like hell. But then they've got the little dudes. Now you might think, what's the point of the little dudes? Oh, those guys are brilliant. Because those guys, those are shield breakers. Those guys are there to, um, they're, they're support, basically. They are there to rip your shields away so the other guys can kill you. <laughs> it's actually quite brilliantly designed. I do like the enemy design. I love the AI design. Probably the best overall aspect of the gameplay for me. Uh, I'm right behind the guns. So good enemies, good AI, good guns. You can see why I am willing to praise this game so much despite the fact that I have issues with it. But you notice I haven't talked about the story yet. you mind if I share a quick thing with you? So... I'm familiar with Bungie, because I played Myth and Myth 2. But I want to explain this a little bit, because it's not like I played the games and walked away. I used to play Myth 2 all the time with a friend of mine in the multiplayer mode. There was a thing where you would have a point system and you could design which units you have. And I loved the idea of an RTS where you don't have base building. Even today, that's actually pretty rare. Where you have your squad, and that's it. Manage your squad. And in some cases, that squad would actually carry forward over maps. Not as much as it should have. But that's not what really caught me about Myth. What caught me was the narrative. Now, I didn't actually know Bungie, so I knew who Bungie was because they made Halo. I didn't realize, it didn't process to me for years later that they were the ones who made Myth. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. Because of the world building, the narrative, and the setting is something that they're just really good at, in my opinion. Um, so I keep kind of looking down at this. I'm just going to pull this up here. Uh, this... I don't even know if you can get hold of this anymore. This is a Steve Jackson Games GURPS uh, book for Myth, for the Myth setting. Now, I didn't play that much GURPS, although I did actually play GURPS back in the day. That's not why I bought this. I bought this because I fell in love with the setting of Myth. And this thing is absolutely chock full with lore. So, so, so much lore. Like, there's stats, right? Here's the Brigand, for example. It shows how many points they cost, GURPS. It shows their gen their average stats down here. And then the other, I'd say 60% of the page is devoted towards, here's what the brigands are. Here's their concept. Here's where they are. Here's how this other aspect of the setting. So in the brigand case, we have common names and why their nomenclature is like that. We have uh, an aspect of the legal system exactly what high justice is and low justice and how it applies to brigands and what kind of ranks are relevant for this and blah 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 then we talk about how the legion works why people embrace the banditry thing why the dark tends to use them what kind of equipment they use why they use that equipment this is a lore treasure trove anybody even remotely interested in bungee lore i highly recommend picking up this book if it is available i actually don't know i bought this a very long time ago this came out in 1999 and I'm pretty sure that's when I bought it. <clears throat> God, yeah, I was uh, I was in high school when this came out. Just leaving it. Anyways, point being, the lore and narrative of this setting so caught my attention that I actually, to this day, have based certain elements of my own setting, the extant, off of myth. Which brings me to Halo. The intro does a wonderful amount of things to establish a large amount very quickly. It does the hook thing. I've talked about this a lot over my television stuff on Mondays and Tuesdays, where uh, the cold open, one of the, one of the two big points of a cold open is to get the hook into the viewer. Get their interest, in other words. Be like, hey, check this out. That can be in an interesting concept or maybe a twist or all, you know, prompting a question. What is this? This game does kind of all of those. 
right at the beginning, even if you know nothing about what's going on, we very quickly established that there's the UNSC, there's the Covenant, there's this giant thing which might be a super weapon. They are undergone. They are being, they're losing. The Master Chief is some kind of super weapon. Cortana is some kind of super AI. Keys is super awesome. <laughs> we get a few tidbits very, very quickly, like the fact that we are a super soldier and the Covenant is winning. The way it so effortlessly shows the fact that the Covenant are smashing us, the fact that we we in we where we warp in the covenants there and even though we are destroying their ships left and right you caught that right we still lose our ship very quickly inside of minutes all of that helps to emphasize very quickly the kind of threat we're facing and what the covenant are when it comes to you know the UNSC and the humans who are trying to fight against them so we get Cortana and we get move forward and we'll crash land and then the game continues to kind of establish things as we sort of go through it. And of course there's the wonderful build up and payoff of the reveal of the flood, which I've already of course totally spoiled for you, but whatever, everyone knows about the flood at this point, right? And it was hard to put myself into the mindset of not knowing what the flood is, because in this game, this is going to sound like a weird thing, this isn't quite a complaint, but in this game the flood are space zombies. I don't mean that as an insult. They are very effective space zombies. They have all the benefits of zombies when it comes to their use as a narrative trope, uh, with the exception of the the original point of zombies. Let's ignore that for a second. It's a whole other thing. But right, the, the, the swarm, the fact that they grow off of their their successes, so they are a a snowball effect kind of a thing going on. The fact that they are body horror, the fact that they will take of what they have and use that knowledge. You know, they mention they're repairing the ship. They just mention that as an aside. And then sometime later they mention, oh yeah, no, they're super, they're intelligent and they can rip information out of people, which is what they were doing to Keys. Just all sorts of fun, horrific, horrible stuff. But there's not much extra there, which is fine. The Flood will be developed in future games. But even here, the build-up and payoff of that initial thing is very effective. It's right up there with, say, Homeworld Cataclysm or System Shock 2, which is two other examples we kept using when it came to this kind of body horror. I do want to mention, though, the narrative feels weird. It feels like, well... I should probably explain my very first statement. I just realized I hadn't. I mentioned this is a Star Wars game. Allow me to clarify. There's Star Wars, A New Hope, and then there's Jurassic Park. Now, what's the difference between these two things? Well, they're both smash successes which have had a significant impact on cinematography as an industry, as well as the creative side of things, and on fiction in general. They're big hits, both financially and creatively. What's the difference, then? Well, Star Wars was a mess. Anybody who's studied even the, the distant edges of how Star Wars A New Hope was made could tell you that was a stumbling, bumbling, and then somehow it was amazing. Somehow. Jurassic Park, by contrast, had everything lined up. All the dominoes were in place. They had all the talented people, all the tech, all the, all the research, all the money, all the funding. Everything was perfectly positioned to make a smash success. You see why I say this is more of a Star Wars? Because it really does feel like these very talented people effectively bumbled into this success story. It'll be interesting to review the future Halo games to see if this carries forward, because, well, I haven't played them. But I mention that because there's a lot of toe-in-the-pool kind of thing going on with the narrative of this game. We don't really know much about the war against the Covenant, other than the fact that they are a serious enemy, and we are losing to the point where we're willing to go on a completely wild, random shot to get something that might be a super weapon to help turn the tides. We don't know much about the Flood, other than the fact that they were a horrifically dangerous thing hundreds of thousands of years ago, and, or maybe it was a hundred thousand, 
tens of thousands of years ago. And in order to defeat them, they wiped out all life in the galaxy in order to, to, to starve them out. That's fun. Um, we don't know much about Cortana or the Spartan 2 program or any of these other things, but we get we get just a little bit of a peek. There's, there's two analogies for that. There's the peek through the eye hole, and there's the dipping the toe in the water. It just It's just wetting your appetite, which is exactly what this game did, which is exactly why I was so engaged in the myth setting, because it put forth so many ideas that hinted at more. Now, I'm going to keep my thoughts to myself, because we're going to keep going through the remainder of the games, and unfortunately or not, I actually know a decent amount about the greater overall encyclopedic lore of the Halo series, thanks to having friends who played this franchise for some time, and access to things like Wikipedia. But we'll see going forward. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on this one, guys. And I hope you've enjoyed the streams, despite how frustrating the game got. Starting in, well, sometime after this video goes live, but at 3 p.m. today, as of this date, when this video is going live, we'll be starting the Halo 2 run. I hope we'll see some of you guys there. I'll see you next time.